Hello, I'm Paul Feldman and I'll be presenting Unmasking the State as part of the Rethinking Our Future course. The first session is asking the question, so what is the state? You have to say this is a question seldom raised or asked. You're born and grow up within a state system that's been around a very long time. Most people take it for granted. It's a kind of given, a thing that seems to have existed forever and always will. It's just there. This course sets out to challenge these kinds of common assumptions about the state and to reveal or unmask its true nature, its purpose, its role in society, how it relates to capitalism. We're doing this in the middle of a pandemic which has brought the role of the state into sharp relief and the Russian invasion of Ukraine, a war which raises lots of questions about the nature and character of different political systems, also says a lot about the crisis of the state internationally. Towards the end of the course, we'll discuss what needs to change in terms of the state so we can achieve a society which favours the many and not the few. I assume you're here because you want to see a transformation of society, an end to corporate and financial power, a real democracy. What stands in the way of this transition, the course will try and show you, is the present state's power to shape and control our lives. While many focus on the power and influence of corporations and banks, as the course develops, I will show how it is actually the state that maintains, sustains and reinforces capitalist economic and financial control. I will also argue that no number of elections or change of personnel can alter the essential nature of the state. The key to creating a fairer, cooperative and democratic economic system lies in changing the way we are ruled. As the course will attempt to show, we can't transform society, achieving system change, without transforming the state and creating a real democracy. That's how we will end corporate power and all the misery, inequality and destruction of nature that comes with it. To achieve this, it's vital we get really clear about what the state is all about before moving on to discuss the way forward and possible solutions. The real nature of the state, its main purpose, is obscured. Its essential role is shrouded in a fog. This is not, I would hasten to say, a result of a conspiracy to keep the UK state's real role hidden. It's partly to do with the long, piecemeal evolution of the state since the revolutionary upheavals of the 17th century. Crucially, the division in society between state, political and economic spheres makes it a challenge to reveal the actual processes that lay behind decision-making at state level. And the existence of a market economy that operates largely independent of the state helps to mystify the role of the state. We'll come back to this point. So what do we actually mean by the state? To be clear from the outset, this course is dealing with the state as the political entity of a country, the system for governing and ruling over a defined territory. So it's not about the UK as a recognised sovereign state, nor is it simply about the government of the day. The state as a whole is bigger than government, although clearly governments are part of the state. Getting to grips with the state is made more difficult by the fact that the state taken as a whole is not a material, concrete, 
touchable object. You can't point to the state as a single entity. We are dealing with what is known as a conceptual abstraction. Abstract terms refer to ideas or concepts that have no physical existence. Examples include love, success, freedom, good, morals, democracy and the state. That doesn't mean we can't get to understand the state. You just have to approach it in a distinct way, through its parts. And to set your mind at rest, that's what we'll be doing in the course. What is the relation between the state and law, the state and politics, the state and civil society, the public and the private, state power and capitalism? Do states have institutional or operational autonomy? These are some of the questions we will try to make sense of. First, a little history. How did the state, or Estado, État, or Staat, become the accepted term to describe a specific type of political rule? This process began with efforts to establish a political power within the population of a defined territory. Earliest examples include the Confucian state tradition in China and a distinct Indian tradition going back to 300 BCE. The Greek and Roman innovations of assemblies, senates, codes of law, consuls and emperors are well known. Following the collapse of the Roman Empire, several centuries elapsed in Europe before territorial monarchies came to dominate the continent. And it was not until the 17th century that the modern state began to take shape, accompanying the Reformation and then the rise of capitalism. The emergence of state institutions signified a break with the more personal style, for example, of an absolute monarchy. In such societies, the political system, with the state at its centre, is disembedded from the wider society and the state takes the form of an impersonal power. The state is separate from those who exercise power in its name. Governments come and go. The state lives on. So the state is distinct from the parties or political alliances that form the government from time to time. For political scientists Colin Hay and Michael Lister, the state, for better or worse, quote, mobilises populations in defence of its realm, regulates, monitors and polices conduct within civil society, intervenes within the economy. Few would then deny the pervasiveness of the influence of the state within modern societies, end quote. So the modern state is ubiquitous or omnipresent. It is everywhere and always present. Think for a moment how it touches your life in so many different ways. When you were born, there was a legal obligation to register your birth with the state. The same state requires you to attend school from a certain age and stay in education at least until you are 16. The curriculum framework is set out by the Department for Education so what gets taught is controlled by the state. The state sets out when you can join the armed forces and at what age you can vote. Everyone who works is obliged to have a national insurance number and register for tax. Minimal working conditions are set out by a state-sponsored agency. You want to strike? Legislation sets out what you can and cannot do in a legal sense, including how many pickets are allowed and where they can stand. Want to go abroad? Get a passport first from, you guessed it, 
another state body. The state relates to people in so many ways. It lays down the rules of the road, marriage and partnership laws, imprisonment and arrest. State laws cover racial discrimination, building regulations, tenancy law, social care and pensions. Try living outside of the state and its tentacles and you will find it very difficult indeed. Hay and Lister describe in broader terms not just the concept of the state but the range of powers it possesses. They assert that the state is fundamental to political analysis. We should also add that it is fundamental to political action too, but more on that point later on in the course. The state's influence, as they point out, is pervasive. It's everywhere and nowhere at the same time. It is greater than political power. As they say elsewhere, while governments come and go, the state as an institutional ensemble persists as it evolves over time. Definitions are helpful to start with and unfolding them adds to our knowledge. The three definitions that follow have much in common, but there are also some key differences which I will try and unravel for you. State theorist Graham Gill's notion opens up the question of what power is and how it is implemented. He says, quote, to the extent that the state can be said to have an essence, it is the continuing projection of public power in pursuit of its aims. It does this in a particular territory through acceptance of its sovereignty, its bureaucratic structure and the monopoly of coercion, End quote. This definition specifically relates to the power of the state and not, for example, to the power, say, of the major corporations like Google or Amazon. Clearly they are related, but they are not the same. How these different power centres connect with each other, often in a problematic and contradictory way, will be discussed in detail as the course progresses. For Gill, the power is a public one. I don't think he means it's people-centred or controlled in a transparent way. He is indicating that the process is part of society. Noticeably, he talks about the pursuit of its aims, the state's own aims. In other words, the state as an entity develops its own agenda, takes on a kind of life of its own. Hard to grasp this idea, I know, but hopefully it will make more sense the deeper into the course you go. Gill develops the view that the state's bureaucratic structure is characterised by specialisation and organisational differentiation from other bodies and institutions in society. He regards their projection of power and authority as essential. He outlines how the state is connected to institutions such as political parties, pressure groups, non-governmental organisations or NGOs and business and through these to society as a whole. An important point here is that the different parts of the state do not exercise authority on their own behalf but only that authority which flows to them as part of the state. Max Weber, who was one of the founders of modern sociology, worked in Germany in the late 19th and early 20th century. His characterization was based on the early development of the German state with its vast bureaucracy. He wrote that, quote, the modern state possesses an administrative and legal order subject to change by legislation 
to which the organised activities of the administrative staff are oriented. This system of order claims binding authority over all action taking place in the area of its jurisdiction. The use of force is regarded as legitimate only insofar as it is either permitted by the state or prescribed by it. End quote. For Weber, the activities of the state were the result of legislation that had passed through the political system. Weber therefore defined the state in terms of its procedures and not its function. A key insight was his analysis that the state had a monopoly on the sanctioned use of force within society. He later qualified this by saying that states usually result to non-violent means to secure their existence and maintain general political and social order. Weber's approach remains the building block for thinkers who came after him. Weber's view that the state possesses binding authority and has a monopoly on the use of violence is taken further by sociology professor Bob Jessup, who has developed state theory over many years. He says that, quote, the core of the state apparatus comprises a relatively unified ensemble of socially embedded, socially regularized institutions and organizations whose socially accepted function is to define and enforce collectively binding decisions in the name of the common interest of an imagined political community identified with that territory. So the state's main functions are socially accepted by society at large. Its authority is acknowledged and accepted in a variety of ways, some through everyday practice and others through legitimation events like elections and referendums. Ruling in the name of the common interest, as Jessup puts it, implies that there are ideological sides to sustaining the state's authority. What is being suggested here is that the common interest is somewhat manufactured to justify various policies and actions. As Jessup says elsewhere, there is never a general interest that embraces all possible particular interests. We'll come back to Jessup's definition later on in the course, unpacking his dense description. In the meantime, we can set out some key features of the state that apply pretty much universally. By an ensemble of socially constructed institutions, we mean a group of key bodies that are relatively autonomous from each other, like the judiciary, the armed forces, government and so on. But together they constitute a core apparatus of the state. We'll go into more detail about these different bodies in the next section. Another key characteristic is that state decisions are binding. They are not optional. Some people would like to withhold that proportion of tax that goes on funding nuclear and other weapons, but that choice is not available. Failure to pay council tax can lead to eviction or having the bailiffs at your door. Power or the authority to make decisions and enforce them is dispersed and held by various sections of the state. We shall go deeper into all these characteristics as the course develops. The fact that the state holds a monopoly on the use of violence is self-evident. For example, the police and the army are authorised to use force in circumstances set out by the appropriate state body. 
Ordinary citizens cannot do the same without facing criminal charges. In 1984, five thousands of miners were arrested for defying Tory laws and picketing, while police violence went unpunished because it was sanctioned by the state. Thousands of Extinction Rebellion supporters have been arrested for civil disobedience actions. While the state is rooted in society in the broadest sense, it is also separate from the wider community in terms of its organisation, personnel and functions. This is a paradox which in many ways creates an inherent weakness within the state system. It should be fairly obvious that the power of a state apparatus extends as far as a defined territory, usually marked by a border, or in the case of an island like Britain, by an imaginary line in the sea. The question of social acceptance, as Jessup puts it, is crucially important. Were citizens over whom the state claims power declined to accept that authority, it's obvious that the state could not function. How this acceptance is achieved is presented later on in the course, when we will talk about hegemony and the role of ideology in achieving, on a continuous basis, the acceptance that Jessup refers to. I hope you found this session thought-provoking. There are references and background information to go with this session at realdemocracymovement.org forward slash resources. You can view the presentations for the course at thinkfuture.learnworlds.com. In the next session, we will talk about the core institutions of the UK state and how they relate to each other.